Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and for this week's conversation, three people from the greater Tampa Bay area have a conversation about evictions, policy, and housing as a human right. Tim Dutton is the director of Unite Pinellas. We focus on issues of racial equity in Pinellas County, Florida, which is on the West Coast. Lisa Brody is the Assistant Deputy Director of the Bay Area Legal Services. And Bay Area is a nonprofit law firm that provides free civil legal services to low-income individuals and families in the Tampa Bay Area. And Roxanne Fixon is the Chief Activation Officer at the Foundation for a Healthy St. Petersburg. Uh, The foundation's mission is to improve population health by closing the equity gap that exists in the social determinants of health, of which housing is one of those. And we do this by focusing on race equity. This episode follows last week's episode, where Courtney Napier described her experience of being evicted, which built upon Bree Newsom-Bass presenting the relationship between housing and policing. We jump in mid-conversation with Lisa describing why it's important to be discussing evictions at this moment in history. Just to piggyback along what Tim said, and especially in an area like ours, it's just so important to prevent homelessness and to provide stability, not, you know, individual stability and of course, family stability. Um, Because, you know, if you look at the loss of a home for a family and specifically for a low income family, it is so disruptive and it affects so many other aspects of their lives besides housing. And if you start to look at those other aspects of the lives, it then helps, you know, spiral those families into poverty. And uh, now with COVID, we're seeing that, you know, these are families who we, you know, would never have assumed would have ever have been our clients. So there's a new face to families that are now facing evictions. And eviction, you know, isn't necessarily I'm 10 months behind or I'm a year behind. You know, one month behind can result in an eviction for a family and then just cause that spiral effect that will have a lasting effect potentially for generations. So the people who are most at risk of being evicted are often black and brown families um, because they're in low wage jobs typically. Uh, They're in communities that have been uh, redlined, segregated for many, many, many years. Um, So the opportunity to own your own house is diminished in those communities. So they're they're, um, typically large renter households uh, made up of families who are in lower wage jobs like especially in Florida and the tourist industry and the hospitality industry, and even in the health industry. We're seeing new faces in addition to those who struggle on a monthly basis to pay their rent because of the lack of affordable housing that exists in our community on a normal basis pre-COVID. So now we're adding on top of that um, a whole new segment of our community that's facing eviction as well. So it is definitely a crisis, and, and we've used the term tsunami of, of evictions, and not to be dramatic, but I think it's important that our country, our communities realize that this truly, truly is a crisis, and it's a crisis that's not going to go away tomorrow. There are going to be long-term effects um, as a result of the pandemic and the impact that it's had on Um, housing, especially because we were already in an affordable housing crisis. The data shows pretty clearly that this is an issue that impacts kids in a big way. 
it has residual effects. So there's, this is not eviction and you know, finding another house. That there are a number of studies that show that there um, as many as 10% of kids in families that of low income experience eviction uh, at some time before they're age 15. Sure. If I just look over, you know, some of the cases I've had, if you, especially in our area, if you look at a family and they're evicted, here, children's school is determined by where you live. So if you're evicted, number one, and have to move to, you know, another um, opportunity for housing, that could mean a change in your schools. Also, with a lot of our low-income families, they also tend to work near where they live. And we live in an area where transportation is, 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 has a lot to be desired in terms of improvements. So a lot of our clients are either walking or using public transportation, which at times can take hours. So again, having to relocate maybe from near a bus line or from when walking distance to your place of employment, that's something else that you know can really have an impact on a family. And then just and then also the health issues associated with it. Not only the physical health aspects of it, but the mental health aspects mm-hmm. of it because of the additional anxiety that it brings upon the household. There's a whole body of research around adverse childhood experiences and called the ACEs. And a lot of the uh, children's mental health initiatives um, and systems, including child welfare and family court uh, systems, look at ACEs as a way to begin to plan interventions. And with the research, any one or two um, of these adverse childhood experiences can lead to to severe long-term consequences for children, and housing is one of them. Change in school is one of them. Change in parents' work is one of them. I mean, just the eviction issue alone is at least four or five adverse childhood experiences, and it only takes one or two to have long-term consequences. Uh, On my street, the first year I was there, there were two evictions. Uh, The families we knew pretty well in each instance, it was a mom with, a bu- with several children. And the process was unbelievable in the sense that uh, there were sheriff's deputies showed up and the landlord's representative showed up and the family wasn't there. They opened the house, started clearing out the house, and the kids and the mom came home and weren't allowed in, even though they wanted to, the kids were really concerned because they wanted to make sure that what they cared about that was a possession was uh, handled in a way that made sure they ended up with it. All of their material, everything they owned ended up on the curb strip. And frankly, they didn't have any way to take those possessions to a storage unit because that cost money. They didn't have any place to take it as far as their next housing. They both ended up in shelter. These are really amazingly traumatizing experiences for everybody, whether they're adults or children, but they certainly uh, were for the kids on the street that that I was on. Usually the vast majority of these families are experiencing some sort of other crisis, you know, domestic violence crisis or often a health crisis. Many of these families work for employers who don't have paid time off. So they have a child who has special needs or or sick areas and, you know, they, they try their best to balance those things. Um, But it's very difficult. And those are often the reasons behind a lot of these evictions for, I mean, we all 
have crisis at some point in our lives. Some are in better positions to weather those than, than many others. Many um, of the family supports are also in their community where they're presently living. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the extended family member that takes care of that child when they come home mm-hmm. from school, or whether it's the church and the congregation at the church that helps take care of that family. So much of that, you know, in many of our communities yeah. is right there in our, in our areas. And so when you have to, and when there's that lack of affordable housing or that need for affordable housing, it's just not so easy to say, well, we can just move down the street or we can move a couple streets over. In many instances, you're moving quite a distance away from where you're presently living just to secure housing that you can actually afford. Sometimes with a stop at a shelter on the way. And also it's very important to understand that the eviction process changes depending upon what part of the country you're in because it's regulated by your state statutes. And in some instances, your local municipalities will have um, additional um, laws that or ordinances that pertain to the eviction process. However, with the legal eviction process in most states, there is that notice requirement. So there's a notice requirement that needs to go to the tenant. So whether it's for non-payment of rent or for a violation of some type of rule within the lease agreement, there is a notice requirement, meaning that the, the tenant is supposed to be legally put on notice that there could be a pending eviction coming. So depending upon whether it's non-payment of rent or for another type of lease violation determines the length of time that the tenant has within that notice to try and rectify whatever the non-compliance is. In the event that it's able to rectify compliance, the landlord can then file a formal, formal excuse me, um, complaint or petition for eviction within their local courts. Once that petition or complaint for eviction is filed, the tenant has, and here in Florida, the tenant only has five days to respond. And one of the problems that we run into a lot here in our state is that because Florida is such a transient state, we have individuals and families from all over the country. So they're used to maybe living up north where you can't evict people during the cold months or they're used to 30-day notices or 60-day notices. And again, the eviction rules pertain to the state that you live in. So in Florida, there's only a five-day window in which a tenant can respond to the eviction. They also are required, if it's non-payment of rent, to deposit the rent into the court registry, which can be another significant hurdle for a tenant. So then the process plays out there. If, if you deposit the rent, there could be a, there will be a hearing set and then you will have the opportunity to get in front of a judge. Um, one of the issues is that so many tenants are not represented at these hearings and are not represented in the court process. Also, a lot of tenants may not understand the formal eviction process. So when you couple that with the very short five-day notice, you can see what's happened. We end up with a lot of default judgments, or meaning there is never a court hearing or never a day to which the tenant can actually get before a judge because they're just not aware of the eviction process once it actually hits the courts. The data shows that uh, somewhat, somewhere less than 10% of tenants are represented uh, in a court hearing and as much as somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90 percent of landlords are. There's some indication from other communities. I know um, Philadelphia and New York and Charlotte have done some things around making sure that everybody gets represented. How does that, uh, in your experience, how would that change things? 
It would significantly change things. So here in Florida, you don't have that right to counsel in eviction um, proceedings. And, and that's where your local legal services organizations step in and try and represent as many tenants as possible. Um, but it would make a significant, it could, you know, make a significant difference because a lot of it is tenants just don't understand the process. There's no required mediation for evictions. And oftentimes landlords and tenants do want to work things out, but tenants are afraid to engage with the landlord. Landlord doesn't know how to engage with the tenant. Uh, mediation program really helps everybody sort of win. Landlord gets money, tenant gets certainty, um, those sorts of things. And then hopefully in ways that through settlement prohibits the, uh, or the eviction being on the tenant's record. There is a legal rent withholding process in Florida that if a tenant does reach out and get the assistance of an attorney, that can also result in, you know, not being evicted, but also having the unhabitable situation that they're presently living in um, rectified or remedied um, or having the landlord address that. And we see that too often, it would, you know, a family with uh, specifically children um, that have asthma and the asthma is acerbated by the fact that there's so much mold and mildew in the unit. So by involving an attorney in that and, and going through the legal process of rent withholding, um, that way, you know, you, you, you won't be facing an eviction, but you can also have your, the conditions of your housing um, taken care of so you don't have to move. Because again, as we talked about already um, through our conversations, you know, housing stability is so important and it's even, it's very important in the community that we live because of transportations, because of schools, because of where our, our families are going to get their medical treatment. So housing stability is, is very important. And there's many different fa facets of an eviction. We also always think of eviction as non-payment of rent, which is right now, obviously with COVID, that's what we're seeing mostly as non-payment of rent. But there are other issues that tenants face that result in eviction. And one of those that we see a lot is habitability, habitability issues for sure, and other non-compliances that can be remedied. Um, so assistant, you know, the fact that individuals um, can have an attorney and are, have the ability to have an attorney makes a difference in the eviction setting. The bottom line is it comes down to, for me, an access to justice issue. If you look at it in terms of everyone having the ability to have their, their day in court and to have an attorney be able to review their case with them. And just because you have an attorney doesn't necessarily mean you're going to prevail or that you may not be evicted, but you would have at least had the access to justice, access to an attorney who could assist you through that process. Um, housing is, is very, very, very important. We know that in, in the criminal context, we have public defenders who provide that access to justice. And whereas we do provide attorneys for low-income individuals, it's not a right to be represented in housing court or in landlord-tenant court or in a housing action. So if we look at housing as a priority um, within our communities and within our country, um, the ability to, for someone to have that legal assistance, you know, is just very, very important. And it will not only preserve housing, 
but it will uh, preserve families and, you know, do so much more as we've talked about, because housing is the foundation for so many individuals and, and families that the spiral effect will just be great for our society as a whole. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast. This is a poem from Ross Gay. It's called A Small Needful Fact. Is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Recreational Horticulture Department, which means, perhaps, that with his very large hands, perhaps, in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which, most likely, some of them, in all likelihood, continue to grow continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. As we return, Tim opens the conversation back up. Are there other ways, other thoughts that you have about how these issues about evictions might play out? Uh, in a way that's more humane. Well, I was just thinking about um, thinking of another tenant who contracted COVID, lost her income in a housing situation where she had to have roommates in order to afford it. She has COVID, the roommates move out. So now all the rent on her shoulders and no income. Um, went through the mediation program. Her landlord engaged with that they worked it out to where the the back rent, which was about $3,700 was paid to the landlord. But then the landlord gave her two, two extra months to stay in there to figure out where her next move is because she couldn't afford that unit without roommates. So certainty, I mean, the landlord got their payment, landlord got a date of when they would have possession of the property. The tenant had opportunity to go find where she could afford to live, especially once she recovered from COVID and could move, could move out. And also the public health aspect of it, of not, of, of having COVID and not being on the street and, or elsewhere and uh, spreading the disease. So it's that certainty. I mean, yes, the money is important. It's important for the landlords. It's important for the tenants to not have that burden. Like, oh my gosh, am I going to get sued to collect on this, recover that? The certainty. I mean, we, especially in times of COVID, how uncertain is the life for all of us, mostly every day, but wow, all of that added on top of it. And you know, I have this date when I have to be out and I have some time to plan for it. It goes a long, long ways. The other issue I'll add here is that, you know, this is really about having somebody in your court whenever you're, you have this issue in front of you, whether it's in the mediation room or in a, in a courtroom. New York uh, implemented a thing where they said, we're going to make sure every tenant has representation. It cost them a bunch of money to do that. But they saved three. They, in their estimation, they saved uh, three hundred and fifty million dollars worth of cost because people didn't end up on the street as often because of, of equal representation. A lot more than what it costs them to have the program. So, in those places where have tried this, where they've tried this out, it's really worked effectively. One of the things that I love about mediation is that it moves the situation from a legal action to a human action. Because Lisa's right, there's a story behind every situation. And when you get into the legal mindset, then it becomes what are the statutory requirements I need to meet in order to get an outcome. 
mediation requires it to come back to the human nature of this, which most usually both sides want to get to that. I think what needs to change is our outlook and our perspective on the importance of housing and what housing means to us as a community. And I think when we put housing as a priority, that changes our perspective on a lot of things. Um, because if housing is a priority, then we can do those things to make sure we're pulling out all the stops to make sure that we are protecting housing and providing that housing stability. And again, it doesn't mean that that families still won't be evicted or the eviction will go away. It just means that we will look at those evictions differently with a different lens, with representation, to ensure access to justice again and that the processes were filed. So to what degree do we as a community or as a country see housing as a right, as a, uh, as a human right? And if in fact we did, that would change how we prioritize it in terms of the laws that we create and the amount of energy and resources we put toward it. And in the United States, we don't. We really value issues that relate to private property in such a powerful way. But around the world, uh, the uh, United Nations has a, considers housing to be a human right. Frankly, a lot of other countries do, but they hardly, hardly any of them have really taken that issue up in a meaningful way. At the same time, uh, there are some examples that the United States can look at. Scotland has the most aggressive law on the books in the world around how do you prevent homelessness. So they basically have said, nobody in our country is gonna be homeless. And, and they've, they've started that in the early 2000s, 2003, but they've, they've actually made really real progress on it since uh, over the past uh, 17 years. Uh, France does some really interesting things where they have an insurance program that reduces evictions and also have a thing where nobody can be evicted in the winter because they, obviously that's not a good idea. And frankly, even in the United States, there's been um, some efforts in cities. Now, this gets at this thing about a lot of the eviction issues are state-driven because of the way the laws play out. But there are cities that have a bigger role to play. And in some cities, they've taken this on in a big way. Madison, uh, Wisconsin, they've, they've decided, much like Scotland, that housing's a right. And we're going to figure out, as a community... How, this is really to Lisa's point earlier. As a community, how are we going to make that such that we, we make sure that we are building housing that people can afford and that whenever somebody's at risk of homelessness, we make that uh, uh, just about impossible to occur for the wealthiest nation in the country, in the world, not to have the lowest homeless rate, but one of the highest homelessness rates doesn't make any sense. And it really does have to do with flipping upside down right now what we consider to be the priorities, not private property, but community well-being. And that, that's what's going to make a big change. And we have some guidance from countries much less wealthy than us where they've taken this on and they've taken it on with success. And I think as, as Matthew Desmond so eloquently says in his book, Evicted, that eviction is, is not 
a condition of poverty, it's the cause of poverty. And that's why we have to do and continue to do all that we can to preserve housing and to try and prevent eviction. I do think some of this, uh, because this is a, uh, a component of a bigger problem that is about affordable housing, about housing being accessible to people who are making a, um, a wage that's insufficient. But the other part has to do with the fact that we have a development process in this country that rewards the concept of highest and best use, which is so only defined in terms of profit. Uh, it's not defined in terms of community well-being. It says that we're, we're going to use this piece of property that could very well be used for a whole bunch of other things. But if we put really uh, uh, high cost housing in here, that's going to generate more profit. So that's a highest and best use definition. And that's, that's an upside down way of thinking about how our community will thrive. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. Be sure to check out Tim and Lisa and Roxanne bios in the show notes. And also, join us on April 13th for the Common Good Collective's Abundant Community Conversation between John McKnight, Peter Block, and Dr. Deborah Putney. Learn about a place that dramatically improved the health of the community through building social capital. Using Rochester's community-owned health improvement plan as an example, Dr. Deborah Putney will speak about how the best practices there can apply to life in the pandemic. Check the show notes for the registration link. The Common Good Podcast is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Corman.